I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Audio Book Club. I'm your host, Imriel Morgan, the founder of Content is Queen. Audio Book Club is a monthly event and podcast where we celebrate and discuss Black, Asian, queer and female narratives in literature. Every month, we meet with other audiobookworms to discuss an audiobook recommended by you. But, and it's a big one, you can still attend the live event even if you've read and not listened to the book. We'll share our live discussion in every episode, followed by an interview and Q&A with a featured guest. If we're lucky, we'll have the author, but expect to hear from voice actors, directors, editors and book critics too. Join us for our next live event and taping on Sunday the 28th of March at 4pm. This is where we'll be getting stuck into Through the Leopard's Gaze by comedian Jambi McGrath. You can register to attend at contentisqueen.org forward slash ABC4. The link is also in the show notes. If you can't make it, feel free to send your thoughts and even your questions to us on WhatsApp on plus four four double seven one five four zero double eight three one. That's plus four four double seven one five four zero double eight three one. Also available in the show notes. Oh, and apologies in advance, but you'll have to expect some spoilers. This week, we are discussing erotic stories for Punjabi widows narrated by Mira Sayal. The story follows a young Punjabi feminist called Nikki who takes what she believes to be a creative writing job at her local temple. She quite quickly learns that these women are illiterate and have their own way of learning to read and write. The story then picks up and becomes about loneliness, desire and sexuality within the group. These are women who have spent their lives in the shadows of fathers, brothers and husbands, being dutiful, raising children and going to temple, but whose inner lives are as rich and fruitful as their untold stories. As they begin to open up to each other about womanhood, sexuality, the dark secrets within their community, Nikki realises that the illicit nature of the class may place them all in danger. Here's what's coming up. Saucy stories. It was naughty and raunchy like those women. Challenges to our assumptions. Some of the things that were said kind of fed into westernised stereotype images of the community. If you tell them they're repressed, they won't agree with you. Expressing our vulnerability. If you haven't grown up seeing people of colour in those positions often and it's celebrated or deemed as sexy or whatever, then it's almost just not in there. So when you do see it, it will look unnatural. All this and so much more. So let's get into it. First up, let's meet this week's audiobookworms. I'm Amber and I'm one of the co-producers of Audio Book Club. Hi, I'm Anita and I do community projects in Bedfordshire, but also I do community radio. Hi everyone, I'm Eunice. I work in international development. 
I'm Shazza. I'm part of um, a number of activist groups. Hello, I'm Viv. I'm a musician, writer, actress and producer. Awesome. Thank you, everybody. Let's start off with our favourite part of the book. So I recommended the book because <laughs> you said you wanted something sort of Southeast Asian. And I mean, clearly this book was memorable now that you've read it. You can see why when you said that it was like the first one that came to mind. But I think for me, it was really fascinating for me as somebody that you know, moved to Britain seven years ago. It's considered now my home, married here, my family's here. So I kind of been using books to explore different sort of British culture. It's just been a way for me to just dive into different cultures and explore. And you go to certain parts of London and it just seems like, you know, a completely different place, a different culture. So for me, my favorite thing was I just got this, you know, really look into a life. Like you see, sometimes you see people on the tube and you make up stories, you know, in your mind about, about them or where they could be going. And it just was such an authentic look into a community that I don't think I would really have that insight into not having grown up here. So for me, it was just a privilege to kind of go into this part of London that I wouldn't otherwise get a look into. So I just loved how different it was from anything else that I had read. One of the final stations on the line, Southall's welcome sign was printed in both English and Punjabi. She was drawn to the Punjabi one first, surprised by the familiarity of those curls and twists, through the windows of the connecting bus to the temple, the sight of more bilingual signs on shop fronts gave Nikki a slight headache and the sensation of being split in two parts, British, Indian. There had been family day trips here in her early childhood, a wedding at the temple or a shopping trip dedicated to finding fresh curry spices. Nikki recalled the confused conversations of these trips, as mum and dad seemed to both love and loathe being amongst their country folk. Wouldn't it be nice to have Punjabi neighbours? But what was the point of moving to England then? Now a Bhangra bass beat throbbed from car in the next lane. In a textile merchant's window, a row of glittering sari-clad mannequins smiled demurely at passers-by. Vegetable markets spilled out onto the pavement and hot steam rose from a samosa vendor's cart on the street corner. Nothing had changed. I really liked how over time the women warmed to Nikki and she to them and you could see them sticking up for each other in each other's absence. I just thought that was really nice because obviously there was this distance between them in the beginning and it wasn't even the job that she went for and she was treated like and felt like an outsider even though she was from that community but more western if you like and then over time they surprised each other and developed like a real genuine love for each other which I thought was so nice and you saw like Nikki defending them to her sister even when she said something which I'm sure once upon a time they both would have found funny like when her sister said you know old old biddies are, are writing porn <laughs> and Nikki was quick to be like they're not old biddies she just had their back in their absence and I'm sure prior to taking that job she would have probably laughed along at the same thing yeah exactly I felt that too it was like such a surprise moment for her thank you for that Viv Anita what about you well, I've done projects before, community projects, where I've worked in an environment where I've worked with a collective group of Asian women. So for me, it was kind of nice to have that representation because that side of Britain is often very quiet, it's kept itself. So some of the things 
in the story I could relate to based on my work experience, the kind of the collective gathering together, the secrets, the things they say that are not allowed to be said outside that room. And it was putting the face to part of a community that often people don't see. So I like that. The whole idea of doing that was quite good. Wonderful. Amber, what about you? Yeah, I loved it. I liked how... Because Nikki has a very Western view of the world, so you were educated through Nikki being educated on her community that she didn't really know about, and just finding out a lot about the rigid rules that the women are having to follow and the taboos, and I never knew that if you're a widow, that was kind of it for you. You're not allowed to see men again, and you're kind of shut off from others. Yeah, you're like ostracised. Which I think is quite Mm. mad. I also like how it was a very well-rounded book of like, there were so many themes going through, like it was lighthearted, but then it had like a thriller edge to it. It was naughty and raunchy, like those women. (laughs) And there were so many aspects to it that a lot of people could enjoy. Yeah, I agree. I don't even know where to start with what I liked about this book. I think what took me by surprise is I was going through the story and I was enjoying it because I personally adore Mira Sayal. So I felt like it was a given that I was going to like the book. But I remember cycling back from this studio, listening to the book and then en route hearing the first story. And I was just so, so unprepared. I was like, what? What? What is going on? I nearly fell off my bicycle. I just was not ready. I knew the title said erotic stories for Punjabi widows. Like, sure, yes, erotic stories makes it sound like a a tad higher brow than like full-blown pornographic, if that makes sense. I had this like separation in my mind that it was going to be still quite tame and what we got and what I thought were two completely different things. I just really liked how it so quickly challenged my expectations and how much it just completely flipped a script on like what I thought Southeast Asian women were getting up to. Even at a certain, like I didn't even, you know what, to be perfectly honest, I'm going to put my cards on the table. I didn't even think of them as sexual beings at all, full stop. And so I really loved how quickly that challenged me and that discomfort I felt and why I felt so awkward. Like, why am I awkward about this? Of course, they are women and women are sexual beings. So duh. But still, where's that discomfort coming from? What has society told me about this group of people that I can't see them or I find it funny or amusing. I'm going through those same emotions as Nikki is being like completely taken aback and surprised. They don't have kids and therefore didn't have sex. Like it's super, it's super weird. But I loved that it challenged me in that way. As she made her way to the room, the noise became louder and she could hear a voice clearly speaking. He puts his hand on her thigh as she's driving the car. And as she's driving, he moves his hand closer between her legs. She can't concentrate on driving, so she tells him, Let me just get to a small side street, he tells her. Why do we have to wait? Nikki froze outside the door. It was Sheena's voice. Another woman called out, Gee, why is he so impatient? Can't keep it in his pants until they get to a side street? She should punish him by driving him around the car park until his little balloon deflates. Another wave of laughter. Nicky threw open the door. Sheena was sitting on the front desk with the book open in her hands and all the women were crowded around her. We all took quite different things away, but also there's some overlaps in that. But I think the one thing that we all are aware of is that there's this huge theme of women and sexuality. And I was curious how some of you might have connected or related to the book, especially with regards to the taboo and the stigma around expressing 
your sexuality, your desires or your fantasies? I mean, obviously, you do not have to share anything super personal. But was there anything in the way that these women were in the reluctance or the hesitation or the secrecy that you connected to or related to? Just when you were saying about how it kind of challenged you and the discomfort you felt, I felt exactly the same. Just realizing how much, you know, we've kind of been socialized to see sexy or sex a certain way through like film or books so I just remember distinctly like one of the stories and it was something like she slowly unwrapped her sari and I was like sorry sex no and it was just like (laughs) the images of what sexy is like it's been sold to us in a certain way and it just made me realize how you know there's billions and billions of people like this is what they wear every day this is what gets taken off and that's sexy and it was just interesting thinking how you know you think you're so like open-minded and multicultural and etc and then you still kind of find this part of your mind where I really it's like yeah actually just being able to rethink that so I think that's really for me one of the reasons this will be a book that I feel because it just made me more conscious about all the things we absorb and take on because what does that mean even for ourselves right like when you maybe don't think you're sexy or it's because you know there is this image that's been sold as this is what sort of sexy looks like or what sex should be like maybe unconsciously bumping up against those things and it can affect not only our self-love but the way we kind of see others as well yeah that's brilliant thank you for sharing that completely hear that because I've spoken about this before with this idea of like, I've never felt comfortable seeing black people in sexual romantic situations. Like I can't do it. I get really uncomfortable. I think I've internalized some really Christian standards and morals. And that's brushing up against my ideas of what beautiful is, what sexy is, what's desirable, what's attractive, who can have sex, what bodies are allowed to have sex. And it's it's really interesting because... Yeah, I mean, I think that would probably extend to I probably wouldn't watch South Asian people be in these kind of sexual romantic situations either because there's these Christian values of like, no, we don't. And I grew up being told, no, we don't do that. We're better than that. We're good. We're good people. You're pure. You're this, you're all of these things. And so that stuff, that kind of naughty stuff is for other people, other types of bodies. And I found that came up for me a lot when I was listening to this as, oh, actually, as I'm being challenged about who's sexual and who's sexy, how is that affecting my life? How am I coming into my own sexuality and my own understanding of sex and what's allowed with regards to like blackness and that as well? I was just processing what you said. And I think it's really interesting because you're right. It's just in terms of what's been normalized, the type of images you see or what's been reinforced is if you haven't grown up seeing people of color in those positions often and it's celebrated or deemed as sexy or whatever, then it's almost just not in there. So when you do see it, it will look unnatural or like, not unnatural, but you're just not used to it. So you're just kind of like, oh, give me something I'm used to. That was a really interesting point that you made. I'm still kind of processing it. Like, oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm actually quite shocked, actually, because you're younger than me. I don't have a problem with that. That's so interesting. Well, you young people, you see all the time, you do all the time, you're at the bus stop and whatever. You know, (laughs) I'm actually shocked by you having to deal with that in your head because that, older generation presumes that the younger generation are doing it left right and center (laughs) (laughs) oh i think they are (laughs) i definitely think they are i think maybe it's more oh i don't know can i speak for myself but in a book i don't know actually to be honest this is the first book of its kind (laughs) that i've come across so let me let me not even say that it could be just me it could be just my 
person who I am, my experiences, that that doesn't shock me. But it could also be because I'm nearly 50, I've come across so many different types of people who have had different experiences that it doesn't shock me because I haven't seen much that does, does shock me these days. Maybe that's why. It's possible, yeah. I think my mum would also, my mum's 50, going to yeah. be 51 this year. I mean, yeah. obviously she was at it. I'm, I'm 31, so she was 19 when she had me. So it's not like she wasn't doing it, but she was brought up in the church. And so like some of this stuff definitely has come from her and this puritanical way of being and having to change the channel if there were people, anyone kissing really, like any kind of romance or sexuality or anything on screen was just like, this is awkward for everyone involved and we're going to change the channel and no one's going to talk about what just happened. And there was never any discussion. That's what I connected to with some of these women is like there was just no discussion of what sex, sexuality, consent. My mum's sexual education to me, I was like, mum, uh, school told me that you have to do sexual education with me. And I literally came home when I was 12 and she was like, don't get pregnant. That was it. That was the sum total of my mum's sexual education. So I was just like, hmm. Right. I don't even know how people get pregnant. And I remember getting to like 14, 15 and girls in my school were hanging out with boys and people were doing all these things. And some guy asked me on the phone, do you want to get riddled? And I was like, I don't know what that means. I I literally asked the girl next to me, like, what does that mean? She's like, what does it mean? She, apparently at the time <laughs> yeah, it, meant, it, mean? <laughs> it meant getting fingered. And then she said oh, right. that to me and I was like, I still don't know what that means. <laughs> it literally meant nothing to me. So I literally had like a very late start into what things were okay in sex or like what sex was. Sounds like he wants to give you a disease. <laughs> it's, it was so gross. I remember good. she told me and then it actually physically explained what that was. I was absolutely horrified. Ooh. So yeah, I think for some of them, Coming up as they were coming to meet their husbands, no one really explained what happens in the bedroom, but there were small things that got passed down. And I just felt like, oh, at least there's like something that gets passed down. Like some women or some cousins gave them a little heads up and a little wink wink of like, use some ghee as <laughs> lubricant, like gross. <laughs> so gross but I really appreciated those moments because it was just like well where do we get that from where does everyone else get those stories it's usually from your friends or it's like word of mouth or you watch yeah, it yeah I was gonna say I think it's more or definitely for me I think it's more like your peers your friends or if you've got siblings not that they tell you but things you might overhear obviously you pick up things from tv and music and all of that stuff but definitely not from parents I kind of <laughs> sat down and had that conversation with my parents <laughs> but I learned a lot from early but that's because I think you just learn things in school and maybe it depends where you've grown up or how you've grown up as well it was kind of always around you so you would just ask if you didn't understand things or, you know, you had boyfriends or girlfriends in school and stuff. But then my school wasn't particularly strict. I think it just depends where you grew up and who was around you and therefore like what your influences were. Because it was probably always around you, but just what you were receptive to or understood mm -hmm. would be the difference. Yeah, I agree with that, I think. Sometimes what parents do around children is not necessarily what they do when their children are not there. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes when parents are just with parents, they're not so saintly. I'm not saying that your mum is the case, of course. So that dialogue or the quietness or the reservedness, you know, you get a bunch of women together, they might not be that way. And you actually saw that within the book, to be honest with you, because you know they're not going to be like that in front of their sons and children mm. when they're home. Mm. Also, 
I've got a friend of mine, I think she comes from Zambia. I found it really fascinating. She told me that the village that she comes from, when a girl starts her time of the month, all the elders in the village, women, used to get together to celebrate her celebration. And all the elders used to tell the young girl how to please a man. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and they used, to, they used to educate her on the best positions. Oh, wow. Um, how to take care of the house, how to be attentive and how to deal with a woman that enters their zone. What does that mean? Someone trying to take your man. <laughs> yeah, yeah how to, to keep your man. Oh, wow. I'm from Uganda, and I'm from a tribe called Abatoris, Western Uganda, so closer to the border with Congo. And we do have something similar. It's from when you're going to get married. So when you're going to get married, you have basically, in the olden days, it was like six months. But, you know, for my wedding, it was like a weekend or whatever, (laughs) like three days. But basically, you're locked up indoors to be sort of fattened and softened. We do have ghee. It's very important. I see. It's kind of this ghee that is like processed in a specific way. It's like mixed with herbs. So it has this herby scent that apparently also an aphrodisiac kind of situation going and I was rubbed down with that for like three days and you literally what? your skin was like soft but very soft now imagine like for six months anyway <laughs> but the thing the thing I found strange is you go from nothing like no one telling you anything about sex like don't get pregnant don't talk to boys then you go to the phase of you finish university you now have a job boys a husband I'm like how how is it supposed to go from don't talk to boys to suddenly have somebody ready to marry And then now when you say, oh, I'm getting married, I've met somebody, it's like you're having all these weird intimate conversations with distant aunties that you like, you know, and it's it's like, it's just now too like weird and awkward. But it's, yeah, (laughs) it is a thing. And it's not in my culture, but in another culture in Uganda, and I honestly, don't quote me this, I don't know if it's true or not. Maybe somebody will call in who is from like the Baganda culture. But there was a myth, the Senga. So Senga is like your teacher. Usually she's your dad's uh, sister. Okay. Yeah, but apparently the guidance would go up to the wedding night. She'd be like in the room. She could like correct situation, tell you, you know, oh, wow. do this, do that. Or we definitely relate to that in the book, like the things of some of the stories being passed down and different tricks of the trade. And it's very awkward because it's from people you haven't had any such conversations with before. And so, yeah, it makes it a bit too much to take in really at the time. Mm-mm. That sounds quite nice though I don't know I think I'd appreciate that if you know I don't know maybe I'd find it awkward did you find it awkward it was amazing I mean so I remember one of my memories is so you have to basically you're being rubbed down with this gay like literally I mean she's my dad's sister but it's not somebody like I knew like who weren't that close but she has to like literally rub down my whole entire body like it's nice in that you're treated really precious and you're, you know, you're kept indoors. You're not allowed to go to the bathroom on your own. Your food is brought in. People come into the, the bride's room and like have a peek at you. But there's like all this mystery around it. And then people come in and then the aunts come in and they're telling you this and this is what you do. And you have to do this for your husband and blah, blah, blah. And yeah. Eunice, I just want to know, did you take the advice? Seven years and counting. So, you know, I yes. guess I'm doing something right. <laughs> Brilliant. (laughs) I wanted to move on to some of the stories themselves and I guess Nikki's relationship to those stories because Nikki comes along, meets these women, thinks she's going to teach them English or she thinks she's teaching them creative writing, right? 
and then quickly discovers that she's teaching them how to write actual letters A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And then that quickly changes. But something about the way in which she approaches these women once she understands their situation, I found quite, I don't know if anyone's going to agree with me on this, but I found her to have a bit of like this kind of savior mentality of like, you need rescuing, you guys need feminism, you need to like unlock yourselves. And I found that really problematic. Did anyone else experience that when reading from her perspective? What teaching experience do you have? She asked in Punjabi. The girl responded in hurried English. I'll admit I don't have much teaching experience, but I'm really interested in... Kowinda held up her hand. Please answer me in Punjabi, she said. Have you ever taught? Uh, no. Why do you want to teach this class then? I have a... How do you say it? A passion for help the women, Nikki said. Hmm... Corwinda acknowledged coolly. On the CV, the longest list was under a header called Activism. Greenpeace petitioner, women's aid volunteer, UK femme fighters volunteer. Corwinda didn't know what all of it meant, but the last title, UK femme fighters, was familiar. It was one thing to battle for funding against the likes of Gurdaj Singh behind closed doors, but these British-born Indian girls who hollered publicly about women's rights were such a self-indulgent lot. I get what you mean, especially as she's this femme fighter, and also I think she's a bit lost into what she wants to do, and she hasn't found her purpose yet, so I think maybe trying to help these women and with that survivor mentality, that's something for her, like, a purposeful thing to do. I didn't get that from her. I felt like she was a bit pushy with certain things. Like when she was advised not to go down certain roads, she was very headstrong in her opinion. She was against her sister going for an arranged marriage, which is fair enough. But even when her sister kind of explained her reasons, she didn't seem to really get it or try to get it until later. And even then, I'm not sure she did. She was just like, no, you should, you know, find someone yourself. Everyone's a loser on those sites. And it's like, she didn't seem very flexible in her mindset. Like she wasn't trying to hear. She didn't seem to get that actually her sister really did want to do this. And she didn't need to be saved from this bad decision. It is something that she, it wasn't a bad decision for her. It's something that she just wanted to do. She traveled up and down the corridor, nonetheless, gathering her thoughts in tiny steps. What was her sister thinking? Sure, Mindy had always been more traditional, but advertising for a groom, it was so extreme. Nikki called Mindy repeatedly and was connected to voicemail each time. I know what you're going to say, Mindy said. Can you see it, Mindy? Nikki asked. Can you actually picture this happening? Yes. You're insane then. I've made this decision on my own. I want to find a husband the traditional way. Why? It's what I want. Why? It just is. You need to come up with better reason than that if you want me to edit your profile. So I just thought, you know, the idea is that you can choose. You should have the right to choose how you want to live. And it seemed that in her own kind of like household, she maybe missed that she wasn't being as open to her sister doing exactly that. 
which I thought was interesting, but I didn't feel like she was saving the older ladies at any time. I felt she kept pushing it with the Maya thing. That was kind of out of nowhere. It's great that she did and stuff, but again, it was kind of like she just blurted out what she'd found or what she'd heard, and (laughs) she didn't seem to think about any of the consequences of that. It did seem at the start, because she had such a Western view, it kind of seemed like she was slightly against the culture, like the Punjabi culture and things like that. With like, oh no, you can't have an arranged marriage, that's quite backwards. And there was all these things that she was like slightly against, which is quite nice when she joined the writing group that she was able to see the good within her culture and really get to know it. Mm, I agree. I thought her character development was actually really exceptionally well done. But I do agree with you, Vivian, that she was just so headstrong. (laughs) And it was just like, why are you so anti? Like, there was so much resistance to everything. And I think that I was listening to Bali, the author, speak on another podcast. And she was just like, we should make the distinction between a forced marriage and an arranged marriage. And those are very, very different things. And I think like in Nikki's mind, she had kind of assumed that maybe those two things blur into one. And it's like, as we heard, some of the women were forced into marriage at a very, very young age before they were able to know fully consent to it but a lot of them entered it gladly and willingly and even had some element of choice in the matter it was so nice to hear those different perspectives coming through because all we get told from the outside as British society is that these women need our help (laughs) we need to stop arranged marriages we need to stop this and it's just like well no there's actually more to it it's more layered it's more nuanced than that there's some context behind how these unions come about and actually it's not doom and gloom like a lot of these marriages are quite successful I thought that was quite nice but for her a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And her boo, her boo-thang, Jason. What did we think of Jason, guys? I... I, I know I've gone off here, but I just want to know. <laughs> oh my gosh, his voice! Was, I know it was Mira Ciel, but his voice was so whiny. It was so, so like whiny. I was like, oh my <laughs> gosh, the way you're describing him, he's like cool and he's nice and but the voice is not matching. <laughs> it yeah. was yeah, it was. I'm gonna stop because all I have to say right now is just on the voice. The voice was quite difficult to um <laughs> to digest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. His voice is not good in this. The American accent was not done well by Mira. I was just going to say with Nikki, I think one of the things we had when we were talking about why she was very anti sort of arranged marriage and stuff, you know, there's a theme that I see in a lot of stories about first generation migrants, about your parents come and they kind of raise you to assimilate and look up to like the culture where you're being raised and want you to speak right and really fully blend in but at the same time you kind of grow up in a way almost looking down on your own either culture or you know certain aspects of it and so 
with her, I think that's where I felt that that sort of resistance came from. A lot of the things that she's been taught in, you know, this British culture she's brought up with is, you know, freedom of choice and all these things being really important. And then so she saw her sister choosing to do that as kind of going a step backwards. You know, the migrants' children's story is supposed to go a step forward, not go backwards. And then on Jason, I think it was nice to see the guy side of obligation to marriage and meeting expectations, sort of seeing the guy's story. You can't have been too troublesome being a firstborn male and an engineer, Nikki teased. He laughed, but it was a beat too late. There's a lot of pressure to succeed, though. I had to tick all of the success boxes right from the very start. Jason grinned. <laughs> All I'm saying is that I've always been aware of the pressure to follow the rules and meet expectations. The eldest child is meant to pave the way. If I fail at anything, my siblings are doomed, according to my parents. Usually it's told, I think, from the woman's perspective. There's so much pressure on you to get married, and then you get married, and maybe it's the wrong person. But to get that from a guy's point of view, I thought was new. But I think the only other thing I wanted to say was on feminism. I feel one of the journeys Nikki went on was the idea of feminism is kind of Western, sort of white women feminism, mm. intersectional feminism, yeah. right? It's kind of goes into realizing that feminism doesn't look just one way. These women in their way in telling their stories, that was a very feminist thing for them. So I think she kind of went in feeling like giving them the ability to kind of maybe tell stories or speak English better, whatever was kind of her way of empowering them. And really like they have their language and the ability to express themselves in whatever way they feel and tell the stories they want to feel is another way of feminist action. Yeah, I agree with that. That's a really great sum up. Anita, did you have any thoughts on Nikki and the themes of feminism? I kind of agreed with you. I could see an element of saviorism and also because I've worked and I actually grew up in a population which had a lot of Asian people. I kind of felt that she must have left that community for a long period of time and came in and not knowing the good and bad of her own community. And I felt a lot of judgment, negative judgment, when if she had been in that community all that time, I wouldn't expect her tone and her language and her attitude to be there, even if she didn't practice it. Because those people don't necessarily practice the traditional side of themselves with regards to their culture, but they respect that there's good and bad. Yeah, I struggled with that part of her because I just felt like it was a bit unnecessary, but possibly accurate because actually it's quite interesting what you said is that it sounds like she's been out of the community for quite some time. And I don't know that we get like a very clear sense of how long she's been gone. We just know that she's been gone. She lives above a pub and she's outside of South Hall. You definitely got a sense of place and the importance of South Hall and the importance of South Hall for that community, especially when they were coming into the UK that was where they went. And it's kind of like with the Windrush generation, like the first place we came in, Brixton. <laughs> like you have a place, you have a sense of home and a sense of belonging in this one place. And I thought that was quite interesting. I did want to touch on the actual plot of the book because there was so much that we could have unpacked with the sex and the, the friendships and the camaraderie with the women. But actually there's this massive mystery and thriller that is baked in I don't know if that was entirely necessary, but, you know, it was there and I appreciated it, of Rupinda's daughter, Maya, has died. And that's like all we know. This girl has died. No one's saying anything. And then it takes absolutely bloody ages. Basically, we only find out that what's happened to Maya with the fire is like 
almost three quarters to the end because no one's revealing anything and we're always getting these mini hints being dropped in. But I just wanted to know how we all felt about that plot and actually did you think it added to the story? Did it take away? Like how did you feel about it? For me, I don't really think it added to it. I think there were certain elements that came about and I suppose it's the negative side of relationships in that community with regards to secrecy and honour and things like that. So that was relevant, but I felt the ending didn't do it justice. And I felt that it, those are topics where you actually dealt with properly, you should deal with properly, not just float around and then someone's dead. I thought it added something because I feel like, to me, part of it was also showing that as much as a lot of the time women are victims of certain parts of the culture that we can sometimes sort of contribute to it. So I'm coming from this from my I guess, perspective as African and working in international development, sometimes there's a tendency to think about people that are being helped or, you know, if people are, say, poor or oppressed by something, then they're perfect and pure. And I think it's one way of not seeing people as fully human by like kind of really appreciating the other side, that they too have other sides to them and they want money and they're greedy. And so I thought for me, in balance with a story about these widows and how this culture has tried to strip them of their sexuality and, you know, kind of... Their humanity as well. In a way, seeing the balance of another woman who, yeah, she's a victim in some aspects, but is also like a villain, I thought was just a good balance to that. And I thought also because of the backstory around the gangs of the young men terrorizing the village and the town and that secrecy, I thought for me, I found was quite again, a useful insight to understand how some of these communities work and how things like that happen and how a community becomes complicit in a way in this silence. And yet they're also all trapped and there's fear. And, you know, this just this understanding that every people turned an eye because they also were afraid that they're going to be the next victim. It kind of explained a lot in terms of how things like that can happen in a community where you imagine everybody knows everybody and everything that's going on. That is a really great way of looking at it because I think I agree with Anita for the most part where I felt like I, I didn't need it and the way it gets introduced or how slowly that storyline develops I almost felt like it was rushed and not sufficient I see what you mean it's like we need to explore why this happened because the fire was a big theme it came up again at the end those two fires that we had to contend with and I'm like okay why? Why is fire the thing? What's going on here? Is this man just an arsonist or is there something bigger at play? Like what is going on? And I felt like it was insufficient in that sense. But I think actually, you just having heard you explain it, it's like, as you say, oppressed people aren't perfect people. And there's this expectation that when we're helping people that they should be grateful, that they should be thankful and genial and genteel and all of these things when they're not just people who, who just happen to be in like a less than good circumstance in that moment. So why wouldn't they also be secretive and deceptive and manipulative and all of these other things that humans can be. I completely see it from both sides now. And I think actually hearing you both say that's really made me contextualise that a bit. But I do feel like maybe if it had come in halfway through, it would have had a bit more sense of place, whereas it just felt very rushed towards the end for me personally. Just on those points, because I completely see what you're saying and it seemed kind of all of a sudden and a little bit rushed, but I wonder if, and this might just be my <laughs> English literature <laughs> A-level or whatever head thinking from way back when, but in terms of the fire, 
it's something that's so obvious. Like it was so clear when there was any real discussion about Maya, it was so obvious that she didn't take her own life. Even the whole story when you first heard it was like, yeah, as if, you know, this quite Western, rebellious girl, like all of a sudden she just decided to take her. Like it wasn't believable even when Ter and Paul were saying it. And it seems like Corinda didn't want to be friends with her. She knew something was up. She was getting those threatening calls. There were whispers amongst the community. There's this thing that is super obvious, but we're all just not saying anything about it. But we all know the truth. And like Nikki was the catalyst, I guess, in the story to just highlight that you can't turn a blind eye to things that are so obvious, like guys wake up. So maybe it was maybe it was like a message for certain people or for certain communities. Like you need to speak up like it's so obvious. It's a blaring fire in your face. What has happened? Mm. Can we all stop pretending? Because look at the hurt it causes. And, you know, maybe maybe it was a message that's what I'd put in my essay (laughs) (laughs) brilliant all I was going to say with Darren Pearl's storyline it very much shows that it is a man's world in their culture and how they're very implicit to what's going on and just following what the man says and even when she was talking about giving yourself to the men and basically fine with rape I don't know if anyone picked on that oh yeah I was gonna bring that up yeah that's when she became like villain yeah yeah anita please go ahead i also felt a little bit that some of the things that were said kind of fed into westernized stereotype images of the community without putting it in perspective with the reality of the community i mean we've been speaking about it in a way now a repressed community and stuff if you tell them they're repressed they won't agree with you yeah so in a sense it's fed into that dialogue poor them Mm-hmm. way yeah I think so I hear where you're coming from is that like there are so many things that we're yet told or hear in the news which almost demonizes these communities particularly in South Asian culture things around honor killings I remember that was like huge news it became like this whole thing 10-15 years ago it does play into these narratives but I suppose the one saving grace for this book is that it was written by a woman from this community to represent women from this community. These are their stories and these are their perspectives. So I think it was written for them by them. It wasn't really meant for our consumption in that sense, but here we are. And so we're seeing it with those eyes of these are the stereotypes. These are the things that we can often use as tools for discrimination. I understand that being wary of it because there's a lot of, uh, even in like black writing, where we're talking about things deep in our community, whether it's colorism or texturism or God knows, there's so many things in our community that's not quite right. But whenever we talk about it and it's for us, by us, we're quite protective of it. And then we don't really want other communities coming in to be like, now you're just, that we're playing into these stereotypes. I understand coming from that mindset. I totally hear what you're saying in that sense. Hey, how are you finding Audio Book Club so far? Do you think you want to get in on the action? Join us for our next live event and taping on Sunday, the 28th of March at 4pm GMT, where we'll be sharing our thoughts on Through the Leopard's Gaze by Jambi McGrath. Or you can send your thoughts, questions and suggestions to us on WhatsApp on plus four four seven seven one five four zero eight eight three one. If you're enjoying this podcast, make sure you follow, leave a review and share it with a friend. 
If you love audiobooks and can never decide what to listen to next, check out the You Heard It Here First podcast, where you'll get honest reviews of audiobooks, podcasts and dramas available on Audible. You can follow the podcast today on your favourite podcast player. To circle back to Amber's point... Turnpal just becomes the ultimate baddie in this. <laughs> like such yeah. a she she just switches so quick. And there she's was just, so much I did not see coming. It I was, was like just unprepared. Bam, bam, let's throw it all in. I think <laughs> in terms of the suddenness of writing, it's like, whoa, so you were sleeping with him. Whoa, whoa. so now you're cool with killing. Okay, wow. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I was like, sorry. But you know what? I never warmed to her as a character. There was one, I think it's Arvinda Singh. She was quite sweet. She was a sweet widow. And always quite playful and naughty. But Tarambal never, I think maybe that was deliberate in the way she wrote her, is that she was just never that warm. But when we hear the backstory, and this is before we get any of the reveals, in that she was forced to be married at, what, 10 years old? And then all of a sudden, it's just like, holy crap. But then she's evil. But then you're like, but... Ah, such a hard villain. It's a hard villain. She's a really, I didn't, I didn't know how to process that. And I think that in many ways is quite clever because she's coming from this position of what had to have been traumatic. She was so, so young, forced into this marriage. Then as we learn, what is consent? And then she teaches that, she passes that on. And that was the most heartbreaking thing to listen to is that she passed on that trauma and thought it was fine to do so. And in many ways, I'm like, well, if you don't know better, then you can't do better. But I'm like, you've been around these women sharing these wild stories. You know better now, surely. Surely you must. How can you say this to your children? How could you want to put them through the same pain? And I was just like, oh, what a villain. I just, I just didn't know what to do. How old were your daughters when they got married? Nikki asked. Sixteen, Tarampal said. All were sent to India when they were twelve to learn to cook and sew. The matches were made there, and then they returned here for a few more years of school. What if they hadn't agreed to the matches? They were so young. There's no such thing as disagreeing, only accepting and adjusting. I had to do that when my marriage was arranged, and when my daughter's time came, they knew their duties. I would think that girls who grew up in England would want romance and passion. Aye, Nicky, that just isn't how we did things. We didn't have these choices. Tarampal sounded almost wistful. So, when it came time for your daughters to get married, you wanted them to have no choice as well? Nicky asked, knowing she was on dangerous ground, but not knowing how to tread lightly on this subject. The softness in Tarampal's eyes vanished. Nowadays, girls run around with three or four men at the same time, deciding when they want it to happen. You think that's right? What do you mean? Nicky asked, leaning toward Tarampal. Deciding when they want it to happen. When they want what to happen. Oh, don't make me spell it out, Nicky. Girls here are spoiled by their choices. A man can't just storm into a room and take off a young girl's clothes and tell her to spread her legs. Somebody at the temple told me that there's a law in England against a husband doing it to his wife if she doesn't want to. His own wife! Why does a man get punished for doing this? Because the English don't value marriage like we do. It's punishable because it's wrong even if they're married. It's rape, Nicky said. It was another one of those words surrounded by such taboo that she had never learned its Punjabi equivalent, so she said it in English. 
No wonder Tarampar resented the other widows. Although they appeared reserved like her, their storytelling went against everything she'd been trained to believe about marriage. Yeah, like completely. She's just her own thing because you can understand why she's the way she is because of all the trauma she had. But at the same time, as you said, you've been around long enough that you, you should know better. But then, I don't know. But do you? <laughs> but do you? <laughs> I guess then that whole reveal with her and Juggy, <clears throat> again, what a slap in the Ooh. face that was. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> so, like all of a sudden, this is a thing. Her and Juggy's reveal, then it kind of made me think of like this kind of love as a corrupting force, this idea that when you're in love, you're blind to and you're so besotted. And love is blind, like you don't see the evils of the person you're with. But she genuinely seemed completely taken aback. Like, she really bought into this story. And I'm perplexed as to how she could have done that. How did you think he didn't do this? <laughs> yeah, but also her husband was a palm reader and made up the whole story to have her as his wife. So she was living with a man that obviously must have construed the truth to a lot of people who believed it, and so she did. So I think she would just believe a lot of what anyone will say when something inside you at that young age breaks like everything you, you will believe in a fantasy you will believe in a lie because it's easier to do so than to commit to the truth which I thought was quite interesting I was just wondering what people thought of Corvinda's character and how she was seen as a very negative character at the start and then made a full round to being a saviour <laughs> Yes, that is a good point, actually. We did not talk about Corwinda, and she was the vi original villain. Yeah. <laughs> she was the OG villain. Yeah. I mean, once you find out, like, what happened to Maya and stuff, then I developed a bit more empathy for her. And actually, even from the start, so when she first met Nikki, and she thought Nikki was like, a bit condescending and not really respectful, I kind of got that. Like, I could see where she was coming from because... But it's a job interview, you know, and if you're late, you do ring and you try and let them know or you're really apologetic or whatever. And Nikki did kind of come in. She maybe took it for granted a bit. And I can see why Corinda would have interpreted that as, oh, here's this person who thinks she's better than us. And I kind of got why she behaved the way she did. And she may have came across as like a villain or whatever, but actually she'd been offended and she was probably a bit upset. Sastria Carl. Sorry I'm late. Corwinda dropped her cup on the desk. In the doorway stood a young woman. You said 2pm, Corwinda said as she rescued the papers. Oh, I meant to get here on time, but there was a train delay. Corwinda stepped back and observed. Although she didn't have a son, habit prompted a quick assessment of this girl for her suitability as a wife. Nicky caught her looking. Corwinda cleared her throat imperiously and began shuffling and stacking the dry papers on the other end of her desk. She expected Nicky to watch her. Instead, she noticed the girl throwing a disdainful look at the crowded shelves and the cracked window. Do you have your CV? Corwinda asked. Nicky produced a sheet from her postal worker bag. Corwinda skimmed it. She couldn't afford to be fussy. At this point, as long as the instructor was literate in English, she would be hired. But the sting of the girl's look lingered and made Corwinda feel less generous. She felt like this person was looking down on her or her community a little bit. Mm. And then over time, obviously carrying the pain of 
losing her daughter. And again, it being so obvious that she didn't just take her life and yet she's still got to carry on as normal. Of course, she's not going to be super cheery and stuff. It was nice that she kind of came round at the end and X, Y, Z, but it sort of reminds you not to judge books by their covers. Like don't, oh, that person's moody or, oh gosh, they're always really negative or whatever, because you never really know what's going on. And also how are you interacting with them? It was good to kind of see that and to think about the judgments you make about other people and also your behaviour. Yeah, I think because she's not a widow, but she's lost her daughter. And so I think quite early on, they say she was treated or ostracised in the way that widows are, but she can't relate in the same way. It's not the same thing. She's lost a child and that's almost worse than being a widow is how they described it. And I was just like, I, I can't even begin to imagine what that's already like to be so kind of taken away from your community. And then even within the women that have already been ostracized because their husbands have died, which is no fault of their own, you're also ostracized from them as well. It's a really bizarre, yeah, she's like twice removed from a community and also still trying to help them and very much involved with the community being active. So I felt like actually as a character, I had tremendous amounts of respect for her. I just thought she was very old school. And I actually think, you know what, Nikki should just show some more respect. (laughs) Just give the woman her respect. Um, yeah. And also she's got herself in a position where she's not equal to men, but she's on that level where she's got some superiority. And I think she just wants to, to keep that level. She's got herself to a position that I guess she must have thought for. So it's quite... I know what you mean. She's earned a place as an authority. She's earned this place. And so it should be respected because most women, I imagine, at Temple don't get to occupy the position she occupies so final question which I think we've all touched on a little bit has this book changed your perspective or outlook of the world I think so definitely definitely on the South Asian community I was going to say earlier I thought it was amazing when we were talking back to the actual erotic stories I thought it was great that you hear these women talking about pleasuring themselves because you're speaking a lot of how to please your man, how to do all this. But it was nice to hear them actually talk about what they like and how they want to pleasure themselves and just actually exploring your own sexuality in that way, which we got to hear about in the two, like, female lovers together. I also thought it was great that because they aren't taught about sex and everything like that, they use, like, penis as vegetable terms. Yeah. Because they don't have a word for it in Punjabi. I thought that was great. That was yeah, I love my favourite bit. Or just using it as stick. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that, Amber. I think for me, it was just a reminder to not write people off. We don't do this, but a lot of the time as young people, we think that we're the first <laughs> first experiences or first, oh, revolution, we're going to do this and da 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 and actually, a lot of the time it's been done before <laughs> and we've just always got a lot to learn. Like, it's just so important to just have a chat with people and learn and don't always think that you're the first to do things or this is a completely new situation or whatever. Because even with something as quote unquote trivial as sex, like our grandparents have been out here. Like, how do, you, how do we think <laughs> we got here? So let's stop thinking that we're the first and we know it all and... We're the revolution. Like, no, talk to your grandparents and humble yourself. <laughs> Are you going to talk to your grandparents about sex with? Absolutely, absolutely not. I couldn't um, think of anything worse. I respect. I don't, <laughs> don't talk about that. Just maybe other, other things. Maybe. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> Anita, what about you? I don't think it's changed my view. I know that older women, what they're like. And because I'm also a parent, I know what women are like or adults are like when children are around. 
So that dialogue does happen. It happens all the time. But I thought it was really nice to have that representation in a public arena. I thought that was nice to give them actual face. They're not just a faceless part of our community. They have desires. I love that. Thank you. Yeah, I think on balance, it's just changed the way I look at older women, probably more so. Like my best friend is Indian. And so (laughs) I know what we talk about. So, yeah, I think it's just me thinking about older people and sexuality and the fact that like actually when I get old, of course, I'd still want to be getting it on. I'm just old. <laughs> like my parts will still be there. So I think, yeah, just like mentally having to unpick what is sex and sexuality as you get older has completely shifted in my mind a little bit. Or at least it's now starting to shift as I am now like in my 30th chapter and then I'm going to be in my 40th and in my 50th and I'm like well what does that look like and how does that work so I think it's completely shifted in that regard but also it's also shifted my idea of who can be a widow and what that means and actually what doesn't get talked about a lot is is the grief is mentioned in passing of like missing husbands and that that kind of thing but yeah I think it's quite nice to have a space in which actually these women have come together they are a community that have come together around the loss of someone and yes they focus on the sexual desire aspect of it but there's also like the loss of a love and a lot of them deriving pleasure and joy from their unions and I thought that was really nice so that completely yeah changed the way I think because my grand grand's a widow and I'm sure she gets quite lonely and actually what was quite powerful is like actually I want to be a better granddaughter I want to be a better person for my family and the people that are experiencing that kind of loss and grief. So I thought, yeah, it did It did shift my perspective in so many different ways and in ways I don't think I would have expected it to. And also when you say who is a widow, it's not just this stereotypical old biddies like you had Sheena in the book and she was only in her 30s. Mm. Even like the idea that Nikki also aged them, even though yeah. some of them were similarly aged to her, which is, it's quite fascinating that we do that because we just think someone died and it's like, actually, your partner can die at any age. Like, we are not immortal beings. Anything can happen. So, yeah, I, I really like that reframing. We've come to the end of the show. Have we convinced you to try erotic stories for Punjabi widows? It is not one you'll regret. Ready to have a go? You can become an audio bookworm. And yes, that does include if you've read and not listened to the book. Our next event is on Sunday, the 28th of March at 4pm, where we'll be discussing Through the Leopard's Gaze by Jambi McGrath. It's actually part of Jacaranda's 20 in 2020 campaign. You can register at contentisqueen.org forward slash ABC4 or find everything you need in the show notes. Oh, and before I forget, Jambi will be joining us for this very special event. So please do come along. Our events also always happen on the last Sunday of every month. So if you can't make this one, you can probably make the next one. If you can't bear to wait a month for your next audiobook fix, check out You Heard It Here First, a recommendation show that helps you find a new audiobook, podcast or drama to listen to on Audible. You can follow on your favourite podcast player today. Thank you to all of our excellent audiobook worms. This was a Content is Queen production, hosted by Imriel Morgan, produced by Amber Miller and Imriel Morgan. The clips used were from Erotic Stories for Punjabi Widows by Bali Jaswal, courtesy of HarperCollins. The music and sound effects are sourced from Epidemic Sound. Until next time, see you soon. See ya.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.